0: The dynamics of the boat and the reaction of the boat was close enough to the real thing that when they actually went out on the water in the real boat they could say to us yep that felt the same as a simulator and straight away on day one they were able to use the boat in a way as though they'd been sailing it for some time beforehand
1: welcome to a new season of next generation design i'm your host jennifer piper In season two, we'll be talking to customers who are using our software and we'll learn more about the innovative applications for product design from the companies who use it. My guest today is Max Starr from Ineos Team UK. They are currently in the process of designing a yacht for the next America's Cup taking place in New Zealand in March, 2021.
0: Hello, Jennifer. I actually uh, came and joined the team about five years ago working directly in the computational fluid dynamics role. My background actually is I've had quite a circuitous route to get here. I worked for a short time with satellites and spacecraft during my uh, undergrad degree and then wound up doing a PhD, which originally was going to follow on from that but became more of a numerical methods computational fluid dynamics degree PhD. And then from that, I went on to work for what was then CD ADAPCO, one of the big commercial computational food dynamics software companies. I worked with them in a role that saw me doing what was called post-sales, which essentially means you go out as effectively a consultant to clients of the company and you help them come up with solutions to problems effectively, whether that is completely building something from scratch or something they've been trying to do for the last month, and they call you in and you try and sort of help them figure out the problem. It was a fantastic role. It was really varied. I got to see quite a lot of industries, everything from Formula One to big ocean-going vessels and all sorts in between. I really got my hands quite dirty in computational food dynamics, but as much as I loved that role, and I really did, It was. I kind of thought it would be quite fun to get involved in the design side myself for a while. So... That's how I found myself when there was a role that came up in the America's Cup. Um, I found myself applying for that and joining the team back then as a someone who's been into sailing myself in the past. That was quite a, a nice kick. I've been into kind of Formula One as well, so it was quite fun that I got to do a bit of that while I was with CD doo But to really be involved in the design of the cup has been quite the design of the cup boats has been quite fun.
1: I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it's been an amazing experience so far. And interesting that you are at CD Adapco because now that's actually um, part of the Siemens suite of portfolio that's products quite. as well. Yeah. <laughs> so I, we're I all intertwined. Say, yeah, so
0: <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, CD Adapco became part of Siemens PLM just before I left. So yeah, it was it was a few months before I left. So I got to see the start of the change of that, and I worked under the Siemens umbrella, I think, for about two weeks.
1: Could you give us a bit of background on the America's Cup?
0: The America's Cup itself actually originated in 1851. The first race took place as a race around the Isle of Wight. The Americans challenged the Brits. This was uh, the year of the Great Exhibition in London. So the Americans basically said, we make the fastest boats in the world. And the Brits said something along the lines of, no, you don't, prove it. And uh, so it became a race around the Isle of Wight. And the American boat won the first race, and that boat was called the America. So, the America's Cup is actually named after the first boat that won rather than after the Americans who took part. There was a kind of legal document drawn up after the first race where the British tried to get the cup back off the Americans. So, it was actually originally called the Hundred Guinea Cup because that's what it cost. Yeah, so the Americans were uh, challenged by the Brits and there was this legal framework which has now become the governing framework of the Cup. And in all the 170-odd years, it will be 170 years by the time we race next year, in the 170 years since that first race, the British have never actually won the Cup from whoever has it. The Americans held the Cup for, I think it was 130 years without being beaten. And the New Zealanders and uh, a few other Countries have actually had, had the cup in the time since then. But the Americans have been the predominant winners overall.
1: That's quite the winning streak. How do the rules work around design? And who makes those decisions?
0: It's a very interesting challenge because of the way that the document, the legal document, has been framed from the first challenge, effectively, from the first challenging race to take the cup. The country who won the, uh, the cup the last time around gets to define a lot of the features of the next challenge. So things such as the rules that define what the boat is going to look like, what size it will be, what kind of design rules that you've got for the boat, as well as where the race will be held and when, that sort of thing. So there's, there's quite a lot that the defender, the person who won last time, they have quite a lot of power over how the next race is going to be won. And then there is normally someone called a challenger who's the first person who challenges to take the cup off of the defender from the last cup. And so between the main challenger... The first person who asks to take the cup and the defender that between the two of them they normally come up with the rules and so that first challenger has a lot of power
1: it sounds like competitors have a lot to keep up with as things change with every race which teams are shaping the rules for the next race
0: the challenger of record is the italians so luna rossa so between them and the kiwis they have come up with this 75 foot monohull flying boat which is in some ways, quite a departure from historical boats. In the last Cup, we had catamarans, 50-foot catamarans, which were again flying. Prior to that, there were 72-foot catamarans, and so the Cup itself has seen quite an interesting evolution of sailboat designs, and historically, there's been quite a lot of uh, filter down from America's Cup to other sailing classes. And so it's it's been quite interesting to see how there's quite a big technological push to the Cup. It's quite a design race, and it's been quite interesting to see how that's developed over the last few decades, really, certainly for me as a fan, and now being involved with it.
1: How many countries typically participate in the race?
0: So how many countries participate is often driven by uh, how expensive it is to participate, unfortunately, Um, just because you, you kind of have to have good backing in order to be able to run a team successfully. So this cup, we have four teams in total and that includes the, the New Zealanders. So there are three challenging teams trying to take the Cup from the New Zealanders and then they are defending the Cup. In the previous Cup, I think there were six teams. So, um, I'd have to count them up. There were m- more competitors in the last time round. We had teams such as Team Japan and Team France and the Swedish. And historically there have been some campaigns where there have been 11 teams involved but those were typically campaigns where there was a big rollover in boat designs from the previous campaigns. So there wasn't a big design jump and a big change in design, which is typically where you see that there is a big need for expenditure in development and technology understanding.
1: What are some of the challenges that result from so many changes in rules and design regulations?
0: Some of the constraints in design are a lot more restrictive in terms of where you can the the design window that you've got, and then on the other hand, some of them are a lot more open. So last time round in the thirty fifth America's Cup in Bermuda, the boats, to layman's eyes really, uh, looked quite similar, and that's mostly because the hulls themselves were for the most part one design, so they were effectively very similar to look at. And this time round. If you look at pictures of all the different teams boats they all look very different and that's just because this time round they've basically given you a box to design within. So there's this big design optimization loop that you can do for a lot more components on the boat which is again it's very interesting for a designer and an engineer it gives us quite a big challenge to solve but it's also it makes it that much more expensive because you have a lot more variables to solve for.
1: A few years ago, I worked for a marine electronics company that was participating in the Bermuda Big Game Classic as a sponsor. It was a two to three week event in the middle of the summer and I was able to see all of the boats testing out on the water. It was just an unbelievable sight and it was really clear to see how much work goes into it. With all of the time it must take for participants to prepare for the race and adapt to the rule and design changes, How often can they take place?
0: So the time between events is, again, it's one of the things that's decided between the defender and the challenger. And there are a lot of things that come into play with that. So, for example, the fact that we are this time around competing in the Southern Hemisphere, whereas last time we were in the Northern Hemisphere, has meant that there's a six-month difference purely because you want it to be in the middle of summer rather than in the middle of winter. But the average time between cups has tended to be around about three to four years. As you say, this allows enough time to do a big design loop on all the boats. This cup cycle is taking place three and a half years after the last cup in Bermuda. And again, that's partly because of that half year change, seasonal difference. But yeah, so it's it's normally about three to four years.
1: Let's talk about the design features you're working on for the next race. What's new in that realm?
0: It's quite remarkable. You you actually when you see the boats flying, they're flying on these wings, which are, you know, only a couple of meters really in span, for the most part, and you've got seven odd tons of boat flying on this tiny wing and this little bit of a rudder on the back, and it was kind of the same in the last cup where you you'd have this catamaran, a lighter catamaran admittedly, but flying on this little wing, but at least with the catamarans you had two rudders at the back, so you had three flying surfaces, whereas with current class of boat you've got one rudder and then one foil in the water and it looks a bit like a gecko who's trying to keep its feet up in the air when it's hot and so it's quite remarkable to watch these boats with flying around on these little foils but what it's meant is that the foils have to have got a lot more complicated so whereas in the last cup we had foils that were passive and you would move the foil around to change the pitch of the boat and maneuver the boat but the, fo- the foils in the last cup didn't have things like flaps or anything like that. This time around, the foil is fixed pretty much apart from being able to, being able to move in and out of the water. Um, but it's got flaps on the actual foils itself.
1: And how does this affect how the boat moves on the water?
0: This allows a lot more maneuverability as far as the foils are concerned, but it's another whole new set of systems that we've had to develop to make them fit, to make them reliable, to make them survive the big hydrodynamic forces and loads they have to manage. So that's been a big, a big step up in terms of the, uh, the functionality and the complexity of these boats.
1: What new challenges are you facing regarding the rules for the next race?
0: One of the interesting restraints that we've had this time round has been that there's been no physical testing allowed in terms of um, tow tank testing or wind tunnel testing. So no controlled testing states allowed. And even the test boat was regulated in terms of how big it could be. So that's really limited us in a a way, in terms of model validation, or it's meant that we have to change a lot the way that we go about it. It's pushed us quite a lot to really design our digital twin to be as close to what we ended up having the real boat be as possible. I mean, really making it a twin as much as possible where we could, to the point that things like our simulator technology has been pushed quite a bit this time round, so the sailors could sail the boat quite frequently on the simulator even though we couldn't go out on the water as much as we would have liked at times so it's meant that things like Wild Boat 2 was being built which we launched a couple of weeks ago even though that was pretty much a year in the process of being built the sailors were saying that in the simulator for some months before they even saw it coming out of the mold and that is miles in a way different from how we worked in the last cup in the last cup we had a simulator and that simulator did supplement the sailing but the test boats that you were allowed in the last cup were much closer in design and features to how the final boat was in terms of size and scale and so the simulator was very a very useful tool in the last cup but we didn't have to make as bigger use of it in the last cup as we did this time around purely through the requirements in terms of what we could and couldn't build.
1: Where does the design process start when you're building a boat like this?
0: Ironically, when you start designing a boat, you start with a piece of paper and a pencil, (laughs) even as as a digital engineer who predominantly does everything in the computational world. When we first weren't sure about... So... When the Kiwis won the last cup and the Italians challenged them, they went away for six months and they started trying to decide what the rules were going to be and how the boat was going to look. And once we started to get murmurings of what we were going to have to design, because we didn't know for some time, I think it was about six months, what the rules were going to be. But once we started to get some murmurings, we started to just sketch out ideas and then we would have someone who would draw a whole shape and start using computational tools to build simple hull shapes which would be simulated with panel codes uh, so that the panel codes are essentially simplified fluid dynamics codes and then over time you start building that hull shape up and you start refining the details and you put that through computational fluid dynamics and you put it through a range of different parameters and then you build a model of how the boat will react in different states and different conditions and so we build essentially a artificial neural network of points of sort of state points and boat responses. And then based on that, we can then develop new models, new boat models, and then compare like for like in different conditions effectively. So you you essentially start by a simple model and you just add complexity as you go on and on through the design process.
1: How and when does the digital twin come into play?
0: Our computational models got very complex pretty quickly. And that neural network that helped us to sort of understand how the boat will react in different conditions also got pretty complicated once we started taking things like take off of the boat from from the water because they obviously they'll all start off in what we call displacement mode, which is when the water the boat is sitting on the water and moving through the water. And then you wanted to try and take off onto the wings as quickly as possible because when it's up on the wings on the hydrofoils, that's the lowest drag through the water. And so that's how you get the most speed. So when the boat is in the water, you, you struggle to get to uh, really high speeds just because you've got so much drag on the hull effectively. But once the boat's out of the water, the boat itself can go three, four times the wind speed of the wind that it's going through because you've drastically reduced the amount of drag that the hull is going through and you still have a lot of drive going through the sails. And so you almost need a completely new computational model set for when the boat is now flying rather than when the boat is in the water because the responses and the dynamics of the boat are completely different. And so then your digital twin has just had a whole other new model of complexity added to it.
1: Can you talk about the design tools that were used and how communication worked between teams in terms of software?
0: One way that we kind of drove that from the design point of view was that there's a lot of things going on in the computational fluid dynamics back end and in the neural network, the velocity prediction program backend. And it's good for people like me, the computational fluid dynamic people, to sort of understand it and to develop it. But the guys developing the foils don't really need to know a lot of the complexity that's happening there. So in a way, we went towards democratization of some of the tools. So we have tools where someone can design a foil without knowing anything about computational food dynamics. And they can have an overview of how that foil will respond based on the simplified models that we built in the neural network. And then if they're happy that that's probably the best design of foil that they're going to get today, they can click a button and that design is sent off to the computational food dynamics world, run on our cluster in a number of different states and conditions. And then the following morning they come back and they've got the results from the CFD and the CFD tells them, okay, so this foil responded in the way that the neural network thought and it was it was performing like this, or actually it was miles away from how the simple codes thought it would respond in, in reality and therefore it's reacting like this and so it's not very good. And so what this meant was that people who their specialty is designing foils and foil sections, and that sort of thing, they don't have to worry about the simulating side. They can just focus on their specialty and their their domain effectively. And so it's really been quite useful to have people who are specialists in particular areas be able to go away and focus on that area and build these complex models where they needed to.
1: How many of these various simulations do you go through during the design process?
0: In a way we're quite fortunate because we've got that democratized approach to people being able to run simulations. I'm not going to say I don't keep track of it. Obviously, we keep track of how many iterations go through because there is a cost element involved to running simulations. But you don't want to say to someone, okay, we've now done 20 iterations, so we're going to stop. It really is the case of, okay, our design deadline is next week, so you know that's when you've got to stop. Until then, you just keep trying ideas until you've got something that works.
1: Can you give us one example of how your design process works?
0: So you're limited to six different... Hydrofoils, um, three pairs, but they don't have to be matching pairs necessarily. And uh, you know, for those six foils, we've probably, we've done, I say probably, we've definitely done hundreds of different candidate designs to get to a point that we're happy with. And in the in the simple models, you know, the the simple numerical models where we haven't taken it to CFD, there've probably been another few hundred again, just because those are much quicker to run. It's a common thing with engineering. You know, there's, there's always give and take, and so you'll design a foil and you think, oh, this is great, this is really fast, and then you'll, you'll realize that it's really fast at a particular speed that you've designed it for, but everywhere else where you need it to be fast, it's actually really slow. So there's been a big learning process, I think, for all of us there, and where do we, where do we need to focus on, sort of, what, what is our key driver, our key, uh, where can we not compromise on, effectively?
1: How late in the game are you still designing and redesigning parts?
0: so we will race against each other for the first time in december there will be a series of races close to christmas and that'll be the first time that the boats will actually line up against each other and by that point i'm pretty sure that we won't be designing any new parts because firstly lead times by that point apart from bits that we can 3d print or produce really quickly here will just be beyond being useful for when we actually start racing in the cup itself um, when the challenger series starts in january But also you don't want to be designing parts right up until race day, if possible, unless if there's something really either you think will be useful but won't make a big difference to the way you sail the boat, or something which is really a big win and worth doing.
1: What happens when it's time to bring the sailors into the picture?
0: You have to teach them a little bit about this boat because it's quite a unique machine. There's a lot of... New technology for everyone, including us, even though we designed it, there's a lot that we are learning about the boat as well. So, a lot of the designers, myself included, move from a design role into more of a performance analysis role once we start sailing and racing and helping guide the sailors into making the most of what they've got effectively.
1: I'd like to talk more about how the digital twin is used. How useful is it throughout this type of design, considering there are so many complex variables?
0: The digital twin has actually been really useful this time around in this cup, because of the rules reason that I mentioned earlier, where you can't do any physical testing in controlled environments. Because we created the digital twin of all three of our boats, so we had one small test boat and then two size boats, including our race boat we could actually sail those boats in the simulator when we couldn't go out and sail them in real life. And when the sailors would be sailing those boats in the simulator, OK, they wouldn't have a lot of the realistic spray coming over in the wind and that sort of thing, but the dynamics of the boat and the reaction of the boat was close enough to the real thing that when they actually went out on the water in the real boat, they could say to us, yeah, that felt the same as the simulator, and... Straight away on day one, they were able to use the boat in a way as though they'd been sailing it for some time beforehand. So purely from that aspect, the digital twin was quite useful.
1: And how about from a design aspect?
0: We were able to do things like run through a whole number of different hole shapes. And then once we drilled our candidates down to a favorite three or four different hole shapes, again, we were able to put those into the simulator and say to the sailors okay this is a blind test there are four different holes here we want you to tell us which one is the best one and so we were actually able to get the sailors into the design loop through the use of this digital twin without them necessarily having to be designers effectively but they could judge and validate what the decisions that the designers had come up with um, through this digital twin and I think that was invaluable because it's very easy for an engineer to design something that's fast, but if it's not something that a sailor can then use and actually use to the best of their ability, then it's a bit pointless because it's got to be something they can sail. And so having them involved in that design loop really meant that we could ensure that what we were giving them was something that corresponded to their needs and their requirements.
1: Do you incorporate any additional simulation technology such as virtual reality?
0: The simulator uses virtual reality headsets as well as a motion platform. So the sailors can actually really react as though they're on the boat. It's really well set up, so they actually will have the same controls or effectively copies of the controls in the same way as they will be set up on the boat itself. Again, this is to help them really familiarise themselves with the boat before they ever step foot on it. We were toying with the idea of doing things like putting the sailors into... The computational food dynamics domain and sort of having them see how the airflow flows over them but uh, sometimes you have to be careful where you don't really want to start crossing the line with that sort of thing where it becomes a bit gimmicky so being able to have them put their virtual reality headsets on and actually go out sail the boat has meant that you know they're, they're now able to sail the boat in a way that none of us engineers can do is it's been quite eye-opening. It shows you kind of the skill of the sailors because, again, because this, the simulator effectively has the boat itself. Um, none of us engineers and designers will actually be able to go out and sail the boat in the real world because it's, you know, you need to be a good sailor to do it. And this was proven through the fact that we've all had a go. Well, not all of us, but quite a few of us had a go on the, the simulator as well with the virtual reality headsets. We can't sail the boat. We really struggled to sail the boat in the same way you know, just to keep it stable, let alone uh, in the, to the same level as the sailors do.
1: How many sailors does it take to manage things on board? Can you give us an idea of the numbers and the different roles they perform?
0: On the uh, 75-foot boats, there are 11 sailors, and those are split between, you generally have grinders, who are effectively the big machines generating a lot of power for the hydraulic and electric systems, and those are the guys who are spinning with their arms to drive systems on board. But they'll sometimes also have other roles, such as trimming the sails or some other kind of control role. And then you also have the three guys who will be doing full full control of the boat, really. Um, so there's the helmsman with the wheel, and then someone controlling the foils and various other systems. So, um, yeah, there's, there's kind of a good role split between the 11 crewmen. And-
1: now let's talk about prototyping. What kinds of prototyping technology are effective in building a boat of this scale?
0: Yeah we, we do prototyping all the way from old school wooden mock-ups to 3d prototyping uh, 3d printing of prototype parts. So again, I go back to a comment I made earlier where I said that you an engineer can design a boat or an item to be really fast, but it's no good if someone can't use it. And so when we designed our cockpits, the sailors went down and took the designs of those cockpits and built them out of plywood. And then they'd come back to us and say, okay, this isn't big enough. We can't really maneuver the way we need to there. And there'd be a back and forth and, you know, we'd be saying, okay, but we need it to be smaller because of airflow and that sort of thing. So we built wooden mock-ups of some parts because ultimately, although a 75-foot boat is quite big in boat terms, the actual working space of the sailors is relatively small. So it's cheaper to build a wooden mock-up of that and then move it around as you need to and have the sailors really use it than it is to kind of go backwards and forwards um, in a digital space. But then on the flip side, for things like um, parts that the sailors will handle and some other small bits on the boat, uh, we can prototype those by doing additive printing and 3D printing. And really just check it works, again, in the simulator and um, off the water. And then if it, if that part works well with the person who's going to use it, then we can do a full-blown production process of it, or even in some cases, just use the 3D printed part. So additive printing has definitely played a role with us here in this cup. In the last cup, we also did some rather interesting parts out of titanium that were 3D printed. So some uh, hydraulic manifolds and that kind of thing. And uh, that was really, that was quite an interesting project as well. It was pretty amazing to see these 3D printed titanium parts and how they were used. So definitely there's a role to be played for that kind of technology in this, in this world. But we still go quite old school as well with, uh, with the wooden mock-ups.
1: So how are you and your team feeling about the upcoming race in March?
0: Well, I guess the first most exciting thing is going to be the racing in December because it will be, as I said earlier, it will be the first time that we race against each other. So it will be the first time that we get to compare ourselves to our competitors. Obviously, no one knows if everyone is going to show their entire hand at that point, and I suspect probably not. I think I'm really looking forward to some close racing. It's something quite interesting about the way that the Cup works is quite similar to Formula One where... Every time there's a big rules change, there'll be a lot of different ideas thrown at the wall to see what works. And then the designs will get closer and closer as people iterate through designs and they converge to the same sort of solution to the rules effectively. And that's why you see a lot of Formula One cars that look very similar and a lot of design ideas end up being very similar between teams. And it's the same here.
1: As the variety of designs start to converge after that December race, what does that mean in terms of the changes you'll see across the board by the time March rolls around?
0: So far from what we've seen of teams' race boats and what we will continue to see through development is that the teams are actually going to get pretty close in terms of how we solve the rules problem, how we how we solve for what we're allowed to do, and I'm hoping that that's going to lead to some close racing as a spectator. Obviously, as someone involved with the Cup and with the Bias, you'd absolutely love it if your boat was significantly faster than everyone else and like trashed everyone else straight off the bat all the time. But the reality is that's probably not going to happen. And there is, admittedly, a spectator side of me that would quite like to see some racing as well and some close racing of that. And so I think that's quite exciting. But I think more than anything, it's, it's going to be... I think everybody here is looking forward to seeing... What three and a half, four years worth of effort. Really, for those of us who've been involved from the last cup and carried through to this cup, then really it's six years of effort. It's going to be interesting to see how that all all translates to this boat and it racing against others and what that means in terms of its speed.
1: What's on the to do list as you're gearing up for the big race in March?
0: What is there left to do? There's still some small design work that we are doing. There are still a few small parts, well, not small parts, but there are some parts that we still have coming down the line that we are trying to optimize the design for to just eke that last bit of performance out of the boat where we can.
1: What have you learned so far from the test sails you've done?
0: Already just with a few days of sailing, we've learned a lot about the boat. We can kind of see that there's still a long way to go in some respects and still a lot of tuning to do. But from what we've learned from those few days, even with the digital twin, ultimately when you put the boat in the water and you start sailing it, you realize kind of where your limitations in your digital model are. And so that has meant that for the remaining bits that we can design, we're trying to eke the last bit of performance that we can out of them and just sort of change the design parameters a little bit, the constraints that we've got in our optimization processes, just to sort of tune them according to what we've seen in the water.
1: How do roles change as you get closer to race day?
0: From December onwards, my role will 100% be, how are we sailing the boat today? And could we have sailed it any differently? And I will probably be working a lot closer with the sailors in terms of trying to help them sort of eke the last bit of uh, performance that they can out of the boat. Ultimately, our engine is the sails that are being driven by the wind and by nature, which in itself is incredible when you see the amount of drive that we can get out of the wind and how much faster we can go than the ambient wind. But this means that you've got effectively an infinite number of variables because a sail is a soft fabric. In the last cup, we had what were called wing sails, and they were effectively like aircraft sails made out of plastic so they were more solid and it was a lot easier to predict how they would perform and where they were but because this time around we've got what looked like pretty normal sails effectively fabric sails they're they're not quite so normal because they've actually got two sheets and they've got two sides to them they're not a single sheet of sail fabric so there's a whole extra layer of complexity in the sails there but then being fabric is a very difficult computational and numerical problem to solve because fabric twists in an interesting way and it also stretches in another interesting way. And so you start to say, okay, well, what didn't we predict correctly with how the boat is performing? And where do we need to update our models? And based on that, What do we need to tell the sailors with how they might want to try and sail in these different conditions? So, yeah, that's quite a long-winded approach of saying uh, that we would be trying to help the sailors as much as we can to sail the boat in the most optimum setup they can for the conditions they meet.
1: How much do you think the boat you see today might resemble the final product?
0: As things stand, the boat itself is, for what people will be able to see, is pretty close to the final thing. There are still some minor changes that are coming, but I think a lot of those things will be evident to the other teams who are taking photos of our boat, but probably not so much to the regular viewer um, necessarily. So th- a lot of the changes from here on out really are more subtle changes. Yeah, a lot of the big, big ticket items have already been ticked off and done. Uh, those decisions were made over a year ago.
1: Before we wrap up, I'm curious to know if the pandemic had any effect on the progress of your design and construction.
0: In EOS Team UK, we actually have a very multicultural design team, which is fantastic for me. I, really, I find that really quite enjoyable. What it actually meant in reality before the pandemic was that uh, people would often get together on a regular basis in Portsmouth, in the base where we were based in the UK, but quite often we were already working remotely with a lot of the design team. So actually when the pandemic hit, from a day-to-day work point of view, we were actually already set up pretty well. Everybody was already set up to work remotely. We already knew how to interact with each other using online tools. So it just meant that rather than meeting at regular intervals, we now were just doing everything online. Obviously, I'm not going to say it was a smooth transition. There were plenty of hurdles to cross and it was definitely a challenging you know, when, you, when you're designing things, it's really nice to be able to just go and sit down next to someone and just sort of talk through ideas, and you lose a lot of that when you can't do that anymore. So that was a bit of a challenge. But really the biggest hurdles came from further down the line, where you want to produce parts, and factories that are making the parts for you are closing down, obviously because you know, they have to, because of all the restrictions. And so this just changes the timetable for when everything is going to arrive and when you can test things and again interestingly this kind of moved us even further into using things like the simulator and developing our digital twin even more because we realized pretty early on that we weren't going to be able to do things like get out on the water and test the boat so there was a lot of limitations in that respect but from a design point of view we bizarrely already had a setup that worked quite well
1: how did it affect your productivity
0: Uh, I'd almost say I worked longer hours because I wasn't commuting three hours a day anymore. I was uh, working those hours instead. And I think that was the case for a lot of the team.
1: Well, it's certainly been interesting learning more about how you're using Siemens software and how the digital twin plays such an important role in your design process.
0: Thanks very much. Thanks, it's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thanks to everyone out there for joining us on another exciting season of the show. We're looking forward to more discussions about design innovation in future episodes. I'm your host, Jennifer Piper, and this has been Next Generation Design.